chapter 20 and John's account of the resurrection of Jesus, which you find in the first 18 verses of that gospel. Each of the gospels contains an account of the resurrection of Jesus. John's is uh, arguably the most tender of those accounts. John chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you that just as you knew Mary by name and spoke so tenderly to her, so you know each one here by name, would you, with like tenderness, by your spirit, through your word, speak tenderly of the truth and the power and the beauty 
of your own resurrection, we ask in your name. Amen. Please be seated. This uh, last week, uh, a friend of ours from Orlando came uh, to spend a couple of hours with Barb. And um, while she was with us, uh, we were talking about Holy Week things. We were uh, talking about services and what a great week this is and all of the rest. And she said that last Sunday she had been with some friends at a Crispers uh, up in Orlando. They had gone there after church, and the restaurant was packed. It was fuller than uh, normal. And... Um, and she overheard someone asking the woman behind the counter about the fact that the restaurant was so full, that there were so many people there. And this young woman said, yeah, there's some church event. There's some church event that's going on today, Palm Sunday or something. And so we, we chuckled a bit. And then, you know, we, we lamented a bit. That, um, that this, this dear young woman didn't know about Palm Sunday. Now fast forward, move forward five days, and use your imagination with me, and imagine that you are a, a trader with the New York Stock Exchange, and instead of rising early to catch the subway or a cab in order to get to work, you sleep in. It's a Friday, but on this particular Friday, the markets are closed. So instead of catching a cab or catching the subway, you put on your your Reeboks or your New Balance or your Asics or whatever the latest trendy running shoe is, and you put on your togs and and you you head out for a run. You're accustomed to waking at 5 or 5.30 to do your research and all of the stuff that you have to do to do your job. And so you just wake up, and instead of going to work, you go out for a run through Central Park. And after your run, then you make your way to your favorite coffee shop, and you grab the Times, and you sit on a table outside, and it's a pretty nice day. It's uh, It's in the high 50s, and the sun is shining, and you grab your uh, your latte or your tall coffee or whatever it is you have, and you sit down with the Times, and then you see a friend, you see a buddy who's at the same coffee shop, and uh, and the buddy says, "Nice to have the day off, isn't it? Nice to have the day off, isn't it? Markets are closed on Friday, and then and you say, yeah, you know, I, it's some church-related thing." It's some church-related thing. Good Friday. And your buddy says, yeah, good Friday. Good for us. Get the day off. Good Friday. For those of you who are maybe here for the first time and have not been a Christ the King, um, this is a point that I make with our folks probably ad nauseum. Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Vigil, and now Resurrection Day. Why do we do this? Why do we do these things? Why are the markets closed on Friday? Why is a Crispers more populated on a particular Sunday than other Sundays? Why do we do these things? The reason we do these things is that something happened in the past, and the thing that happened in the past 
is what accounts for what we do in the present. Millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people observe Resurrection Day today, observed Good Friday just two days ago, observed a Monday-Thursday service just three days ago. We do this because something happened. And notice, please notice what I said, and please understand that I use the language very carefully and very intentionally. I'm saying to you, we do what we do because something happened. I didn't say we're doing something because we believe something happened. Do you get the difference? I do believe that this happened, but you understand, don't you, that my believing that this happened isn't what makes this thing happen. Either it happened or it didn't happen. If it didn't happen, if Mary doesn't come to the tomb, if the stone is not rolled away, if the grave is not empty, if the grave cloths are not wrapped up in the form in which they were initially wrapped around the body of Jesus with the head piece in a crisscross shape, retaining that shape, the body evacuating those grave cloths. If the grave cloths are not empty, if the grave is not empty, if the stone is still in place, if the body can be produced, we're not here, friends. Paul in 1 Corinthians invites people. He does, in effect, invite people to investigate this. The thing that I received as of first importance, is that Christ died according to the Scriptures and on the third day was raised again. And he appeared to the disciples. And then he appeared to more than 500 people at one time, most of whom are still alive. Some of them have died. What is that? That is an invitation. It's an invitation. Check it out. If you don't believe me, find someone who is there. You see, I didn't say, We are here because we believe these things happen as though belief were a personal, subjective, entirely preferential thing. I do happen to believe that on the third day after his death, Jesus died. But as Paul says, if I believe that and it didn't happen... What a pathetic creature I am because I'm believing a lie. Something happened in the past. It's not unique to Christianity. This is not a thing that's unique to Christianity. If you think about it, every religion is rooted in history. Everybody who's practicing a religion today is practicing that religion because something happened in the past. Islam is believed in because Muhammad existed. Buddhism is embraced because Buddha existed. Shintoism is believed in in Japan because in the 7th and 8th centuries, a group of people codified some basic Confucian and Buddhist beliefs and made those beliefs, in effect, the ethnic religion of the Japanese people. And it's grown over the course of the last 13 centuries to become, in effect, a part of the warp and woof of Japanese life and culture. 
They do it because something happened in the past. It's not a unique thing for us as Christians to say, we do this because something happened. What is unique about this is unique in the whole of human history. A man who is dead is alive again, never to die again. That is not true anyplace else. And that is what distinguishes Christianity and sets Christianity apart, among other things. Either it happened or it didn't. I'm, I'm sorry. I apologize to you. I say this a bit tongue-in-cheek. For not being postmodern. I apologize to you for being a modern man. I apologize to you for being a pre-modern man who happens to believe that the convictions I hold today have to be fixed to something and not just my personal perspective and preferences about the way life is ordered. That's a postmodern thing. Spirituality is what I define it to be. People in our culture are more spiritual than they've ever been. But if you ask people what it is that they believe, it is an entirely personal and subjective thing. And that's fine if you want to go that route. The question, of course, is what happens when what you believe about reality comes into conflict with what someone else believes about reality? And at that point, let me humbly suggest that there has to be something outside your own head which defines reality as it is and before which you both must bow, and to which you both must subscribe. That's Christianity. We believe that Jesus was alive on the third day after his death, and he was alive never to die again. And the first invitation here is an invitation to examine it, to consider it, to think about it, to contemplate it for you as a Christian. Contemplate this. Think about this for you, perhaps as one who is somewhat suspicious of these things or not sure about these things. I plead with you that you give some time to a consideration of them. If you need some help in finding some books to read or conversations to have, I will will do everything I can to help you. But I beg of you that you contemplate this and consider this. And for those of you who have considered it and and who have embraced it, let me suggest some things to you. You ask, okay, so it happened. What's the significance of it? I wish I had four hours. When Paul reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue in Ephesus, He did it for six hours. He started at 10 in the morning. We got started a little late. He went until 4 in the afternoon. We're going to finish a little early. Six hours a day, every single day for two years, he reasoned with people about these things. All I can do is skate over the top of these things and suggest that you consider these things, four of them, just four things. What is the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Here's the first thing. The resurrection is the vindication of the Son of God. The resurrection is the vindication of the Son of God. Throughout the life of Jesus, if you read through the Gospels, the Father speaks 
the Father speaks. And in his speaking, he makes reference to the Son. He spoke at his baptism, a voice thundered from heaven. And the Father said of the Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, the Father spoke again. A voice thundered from heaven. It thundered in such a way that it crushed the disciples. They found themselves face down. And the Father said the same thing. This is my Son, my chosen one, my beloved. Listen to Him. The Father declares His delight in the Son, His pleasure in the Son, His commendation of the Son. The Father seeks to exalt the Son. But the final validation, the ultimate validation of the Son is the resurrection. Listen to Paul preaching. Acts chapter 13. Beginning at verse 29. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, today I have begotten you You are my son. What is it that validates the life and the death, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ? How is it that the father commends the son? It is by his resurrection. Verse 34 of Acts 13, as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Paul writes in the first few verses of Romans, the first chapter, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The father validates, vindicates, commends the Son of God by the resurrection. Don't draw the wrong conclusion from what Paul says in Romans 1. It isn't as though Jesus became the Son of God by virtue of his resurrection. That isn't what's happening. Jesus Christ, eternally God the Son, comes into the world taking a flesh like yours and mine, identifying with you in every respect, tempted as you are in every way, and yet without sin, fulfilling all of the law of God, doing what you have not done, 
so that he might do what you cannot do. Bear the wrath of God and emerge from that contest victorious, conquering sin and death. And the resurrection is the Father's way of validating that Jesus did what the Father asked him to do. What is the significance of the resurrection? It is the validation of the eternal Son of God. I say this so often here. I'm not here to pick a fight. I'm really not here to pick a fight. But I will tell you, it breaks my heart. And it makes me profoundly sad. That a magazine that ends up in hundreds of mailboxes in this community can contain an article that arrives the week before Resurrection Day. It is an article written about faith. And nothing is said about the resurrection. And it breaks my heart. We are here to add our amen to the Father's amen in some small, poor, humble way to say with the Father of the Son, the resurrection says, well done, good and faithful servant. Here's the second thing. The resurrection validates God himself. The resurrection validates the Son And the resurrection validates God himself. Look, let's let's just all very happily, in a very safe place, acknowledge that we all are narcissists. It's It's not if. It may be a question of degree. But let's just acknowledge that we all believe, each of us, that we are at the center of the universe and that the whole of reality spins around us. I love to tell this story. You've heard it, some of you, before. It's the story of my oldest daughter who, when she was four years old, in the nursery, took a toy away from a little boy. The nursery worker came over to her when he started to cry and said, what's the matter? And she said, I don't know why he's crying. I have what I want. You see, as long as everything is right with me, everything is right with the world. And it is so very easy for us to turn Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, through the darkness of Holy Saturday, and then the brilliance and glory of Resurrection Day. It's so easy to turn all of it in our own direction and see ourselves at the center of everything that happens. But truly, it is God who is at the center of everything that happens. It is God who himself vindicates himself by the cross of Jesus Christ. 
I've got to read this verse for you, these verses for you from Exodus chapter 34. These verses create a tension which is not resolved until the cross. And the whole of the Old Testament, if you read the whole of the Old Testament from Exodus 34, 6 and 7 through to the end of the Old Testament and then into the Gospels, in the whole of the Old Testament, we are being whipsawed between these two poles. These two poles that are reflected as God identifies himself, as God defines who he is. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, Moses has asked to see the glory of God. He has asked to be introduced into the very presence of God's refulgent splendor. And God has said, you can't see me. If you were to see me, you'd be consumed. You would die. You'd be crushed. But here's what I'll do. I'll hide myself. And I'll put you in the cleft of a rock and I will let my backward parts. That's what the word literally means. I'll let my backward parts pass in front of you. My hind quarters. I'll let you see the hind quarters of my glory. And as God passes by, he says this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And then here comes the loudest word that can be heard across the whole of the universe. But... Who will by no means clear the guilty? I think I've shared this before here. Do you get the tension? Do you hear the tension? Here is God disposed, inclined. It is in the fabric of who he is. It is the warp and woof of his being to be compassionate and tenderhearted, to be merciful, to forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. And then there is this word, but who will by no means clear the guilty. He is also just. He is also righteous. Because he is righteous, he must act in justice. It simply is a violation of his character for him to pass over. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. He must punish lawlessness. So how is it resolved? How is the tension resolved? I'm reading through Leviticus in my daily readings. The blood never stops flowing. The goats, the pigeons, the bulls, the sheep. The grain offerings, the wheat offerings, all on the altar consumed, blood sprinkled on the altar. The blood never stops flowing. And the blood does not stop flowing 
until the cross where the final drops of blood are shed. And don't be grossed out by the idea of the blood. The blood in the scriptures is simply the thing that represents the life. The life is in the blood. And all of that blood that is shed and all of those sacrifices that are offered and all of those hands that are placed on the heads of all of those sacrifices, transferring the sin of people from the people to the sacrifice that becomes a substitute, suffering death in the place of those who deserve to die. It all comes to its consummate expression at the cross. And so what happens at the cross? God vindicates himself. Where do you see his justice? People mistakenly suggest that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, a God of justice. But somehow in those 400 years between Malachi's last words and the announcements of the coming of Christ, God changed in his basic and intrinsic character and he became a God of love and mercy so that the New Testament God is now different from the Old Testament God. Where do you see the highest expression of the justice and wrath of God? The cross. The cross. Where God the Son suffers the justice and wrath of a righteous God. God does not forgive sins. God punishes sin so that sinners may be forgiven. There is a great difference. And the reason that you today, if you are a Christian, may hear with gladness in your heart Paul's words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The reason you can hear those words and be so glad and so at rest and so at peace is simply this. The wrath of a righteous God has been visited in perfect justice upon Jesus, your substitute. And if you're here this morning and you don't know where to go to find peace and rest for a troubled conscience, Psalm 130, verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? If you and I are thoughtful at all, you know that the Lord has plenty of iniquities to mark. And if you don't know where there is a place to go that your conscience might be at rest, that your heart might be at peace, that you might know that you are forgiven and free from the prospect of facing the wrath 
the righteous judgment of a holy God. This is the place. It is the cross. Just as Paul appealed to the Corinthians that they be reconciled to God on the basis of what Christ has done, I appeal to you, be reconciled to God. Come to the cross. Come to Christ. I don't care how big it is. I don't care how much it is. It isn't bigger than the cross. Come to Christ. How does God vindicate himself? He vindicates himself at the cross by showing us that he is serious about his own holiness, his own righteousness, his own justice, and he is serious about his mercy and his compassion. His mercy and compassion and his righteousness and justice are seen at the cross. And so he resolves the tension. The tension that he established in Exodus 34. He is just. He is merciful. And they kiss. They embrace at the cross. And then here's a third thing. The cross is the vindication of the promise. And I'll be quick with this likely story. The first promise that God made in Genesis 3.15 is the promise that he would send a redeemer. Someone from the seed of the woman would come. And when he came, he would exterminate evil and he would exterminate the evil one. He would crush the head of the serpent. Listen to what Paul says. All of those centuries, untold, innumerable centuries. We don't know how long ago that promise was made. Genesis 3.15. It's before recorded history. It's centuries and centuries and centuries. And all of this time elapses and passes. And still evil is prevalent. And the evil one wreaks havoc on your life and mine. There is another personality invisible to you. In this world, in this universe, the ancient enemy, the arch enemy, the accuser, the attacker, the assaulter, Satan, the devil of hell. Oh, stories that I could tell of W.H. Auden, who was in Harlem in the 1930s and went to a theater to see a movie. And before the movie was a was a newsreel of German soldiers occupying Poland and these otherwise civilized Germans. And don't pick on the Germans. Don't think the Germans are especially untoward and bad in this respect. I'm Irish. I know what the Irish have done to each other. All of these Germans stand up and and shout as the newsreel unfolds, Kill them! Kill the Poles! And do you know that Auden was caused by that episode, by that demonstration of real evil, was caused by that experience to rethink Christianity, to reconsider Christianity, because he came face to face with the reality of the human condition and of systemic evil. 
And what is the promise that is made? It is the promise that the day will come when a seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent. He will eradicate evil. He will exterminate evil. He will destroy the evil one and all those minions allied with him. And this is what Paul says in Colossians. And you who were dead in your trespass and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. The picture is the picture of a general who has vanquished his enemy and who chains and binds his enemies and leads them naked and humiliated in procession behind him through the capital city of his empire and the crowds surrounding his enemies cheer his victory. What is the cross? What is the resurrection? It is a vindication of the first promise made. God is not slow about his promise. And then here's the last thing. The cross, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus are the vindication of your hope as a Christian. I need another hour for this one. Romans chapter 8. I'm just going to read these words. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. What is your hope this morning? What is your hope for yourself, for the whole creation? Some magical drug, some magical political philosophy, some magical new institution, some human creation, some technology, some educational advance. Folks, we've got... We've got hundreds of centuries behind us. We need a different hope. 
And what Paul is saying is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the vindication of this hope that just as he was raised, so all who trust him will be raised, their bodies redeemed, and not only will they be raised, but the whole creation will be set free from its bondage to decay. There is no greater hope. And the resurrection is the vindication of that hope. Hope for you, hope for your body, and hope for Libya and Syria and the Sudan and China and all of the nations of the earth, the Irish included. Praise be to God who gives us the victory in Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. O God of unchangeable power and eternal light, look favorably upon your whole church, that wonderful and sacred mystery, and by the effectual working of your providence, carry out in tranquility the plan of salvation. Let the whole world see and know that things which were cast down are being raised up, and things which had grown old are being made new, and that all things are being brought to their perfection by him, through whom all things are made. Your Son, the risen, glorious, and reigning Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.